Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Nick Locker. And we're so glad you can join us. We on Brussels Sprouts don't always give the Balkans the attention they deserve, uh, but the past few months have been especially eventful, so we thought we would turn our focus there this week. Notably, the long stagnant EU accession process has shown new life with the official opening of negotiations with Albania and North Macedonia. In addition, the recent resolution of a bilateral dispute between Serbia and Kosovo over recognition of identification cards has suggested potential for improved relations. But nevertheless, the road to full EU integration and interregional cooperation remains long and littered with obstacles, including the persistence of ethno-nationalist tensions in the region. Going forward, policymakers will need to grapple with potential instability around upcoming elections in Bosnia-Herzegovina, controversy over the Open Balkans Cooperative Cooperation Initiative, and Russian and Chinese influence in the region, among other challenges. And to discuss all of this and more, we're really pleased to welcome Damir uh, Marucic and Maida Ruga to the podcast. Welcome to you both. Great to be here. Um, just a brief background on both. Um, Damir is a resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Europe Center. He works principally on the Council's Balkans Forward Initiative, which is an effort to foster a democratic, secure, and prosperous Western Balkans that is firmly integrated into the transatlantic community. And Maida is a senior policy fellow with the wider Europe program at the European Council on Foreign Relations based in Berlin. And before joining ECFR, she spent three years as a fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute uh, SAIS at, at Johns Hopkins University. Okay, so one of the things we've been thinking about over here at CNES and on the Brussels Sprouts team is kind of how uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine is producing ripple effects that are reverberating um, across the region and beyond. And so it seems uh, clear that that some of those impacts and those dynamics are playing out in the Balkans. Um, Maida, maybe we can start just from a very broad perspective and hear how you're thinking about how Putin's invasion of Ukraine is influencing dynamics uh, in the Balkans region. Um, thank you very much. And thank you for having me um, at this podcast. Um, of course, you know, if, if I can be slightly polemic, um, we're asking what is new um, in the aftermath of uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine that the Americans and Europeans need to be thinking about. I'd say when it comes to political and security risks in the region, i.e. the negatives, nothing is really new. Um, it is just that Russia's war in Ukraine has made some of the already existing challenges and risks clearer and more, more visible um, to the Europeans, to the US and to NATO. Um, you had uh, NATO Secretary General uh, come out with a statement to say that, for instance, Bosnia in particular, alongside um, Moldova and Georgia, it is at risk uh, of the renewed conflict. Um, we've had a lot of nervousness, um, particularly again in Bosnia, but also in north of Kosovo, uh, that Russia might uh, be attempting, um, you know, operations ranging from low-scale operations uh, to foster instability to, you know, larger undertakings such as um, encouraging the secession of Republika Srpska, the smaller entity in Bosnia. Um, and so, you know, 
we we have i think the risks are more visible and um the war has shaken the europeans definitely out of their kantian peace zone um so the scenario that was unthinkable now seems more likely um and so but you know again to go back to the point most of these risks and challenges were there before um, if you remember, in December last year, um, we were worried whether, you know, Bosnia is going to go back into the renewed conflict uh, because of the threat of secession. Um, and this, you know, this was all happening before Russia's invasion. So the side effect of, I would say, Russia's invasion is actually that the EU and the US are stepping up in their response to um, both instability and local obstruction. Um, and so it's quite amazing to me how the level of tolerance of Russia's proxies by, e by Europeans and the Americans has gone down. Um, we can elaborate on that some more. Um, but I would say, you know, perhaps one positive side effect is that um, the West, if you want, is paying more attention. Damir, what do you think? I mean, do you want to chime in and pick up on anything she said there? I mean, and or just to get your take on, you know, what what's what has been amplified? Maybe nothing new, but if it is uh, amplifying some of these pre-existing dynamics, um, where has that been most acutely felt? You know, um, Maida my, is absolutely right, uh, and it, it's it's a good point that that you know we were talking about Bosnia in this very same way before February twenty fourth, and um, even more so, I would say uh, you know there was a, a crisis in Kosovo uh, late last year where uh, uh, you know uh, Serbia had actually mobilized troops, uh, you know sent them to the border in a show of force, and uh, in a particularly egregious uh, moment, uh, the Russian ambassador to Serbia came and, and uh, reviewed the troops with, uh, with Mr. President Vucic. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was uh, most unwelcome, even as tensions were already rising in Ukraine. But as a result, yes, I think that's right. All these things have been here before. Um, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I guess, less optimistic than uh, Maida on, on the uh, I think it's true that that Europeans have been uh, shaken out of their Kantian peace zone, as you put as you put it. Uh, but you know, I, I'm I, I'm still struck by by uh, though, though there's more engagement. I, I'm not sure that there's um, yes yet uh, a sense of how to actually tackle a lot of these problems. Now, engagement in and of itself is a good thing, and uh, you know, pressure and involvement and activity uh, can yield. Uh, Good and positive results. Um, you mentioned uh, in your opening remarks uh, that a partial resolution of the crisis between Serbia and Kosovo uh, was achieved. I guess about uh, two weeks ago at this point, um, and that's good. That is the product of uh, I think the the broader international sort of uh, sense of tension and that that uh, these things can't be allowed to fester. Uh, nevertheless, I'm 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 less optimistic about about the fact that that you know. Uh, the being shaken out of the Kantian peace zone into a kind of sense of how to basically deal with the world as it is. Uh, I still think that um, there's a broad uh, approach that uh, the West is doing crisis management here and not really working towards lasting solutions. I may end up eating my words uh, if uh, a, a renewed push on Kosovo yields a, a, a true breakthrough. And there have been rumors about this right now, but I'm, I'm still skeptical, I guess, about that. 
maybe we can dive a little bit into, I mean, I think we want to pick up some of these kind of tensions and, and, and focal points that you each have touched on in your remarks. But Damir, maybe we can start with the Kosovo-Serbia crisis. Um, do you want to kind of, for listeners who haven't been following this closely, just kind of describe um, the source of this latest flare-up and, and where we are at the present moment? It's a very difficult thing to, to uh, I think, describe fairly, because as soon as you start describing it, where your jumping off point is, uh, I think, colors basically uh, a lot of, 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 uh, of how you end up approaching the solution. Uh, so bear with me a little bit on this. Uh, to answer your question directly, uh, the latest crisis was uh, triggered when um, Prime Minister Albin Kurti of Kosovo um, declared that he insists on reciprocity uh, with Serbia. And uh, as a result, uh, uh, put in place a law about ID cards uh, that Serbs in North Kosovo would uh, have to get uh, Kosovo ID cards and, you know, would have to use those and would not be able to use these kind of dual citizenship papers. Um, and similarly, there's a, a, a reciprocity arrangement uh, with license plates for cars uh, registered in Kosovo. Um, and so if you if you take that as the jumping off point, you'll say, well, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Kurti did this uh, and uh, it, it, it caused the crisis, the latest crisis. The dialogue between Serbia and Kosovo has been going on, um, mediated by the EU for more than a decade at this point, and it has uh, yielded small uh, uh, results here and there, agreements uh, that have been partially implemented, um, but uh, that this was an unnecessary sort of crisis that was uh, derailed uh, the, the dialogue at this point. Um, if you talk to the Kosovars, however, uh, the perspective is different. Um, and Mr. Kurti himself uh, is, is quick to point out that the dialogue itself has been broken because it has been dealing with these piecemeal uh, solutions. So the Kosovars, uh, the current government, Mr. Kurti's government, uh, sees this as an attempt to uh, reset how the dialogue is going so that it's a discussion shifting towards final peace and final full recognition between uh, of Serbia, uh, of, of Kosovo by Serbia. Um, and so uh, if you talk to the Kosovars, they don't see this that as a crisis that they've uh, uh, created, but actually as a attempt to reset the dialogue. In fact, uh, because of the broader crisis uh, in, in Europe, uh, they, they want basically renewed engagement to redefine where the dialogue is going and to get there quicker. Um, but that's, I guess, a, a, a quick background of where we are right now. And I'm, I apologies if this is a silly question, but for again, for people who are not watching this closely, do you see any links or any tentacles back to Putin's invasion of Ukraine into the crisis? I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if there's any part of this in which you know the Serbs are and the Serbian leadership has been somewhat emboldened by Russian support or. I mean, I guess, talk to me about um, maybe A, uh, what their position, what Vucic's position has been on the uh, Ukraine crisis and whether or not you can trace any of this back to that um, or if that's just really, I don't know, a, a gross misgeneralization. Um, Serbia is very dependent on, on, uh, on Russian energy. Uh, they have close connections. Uh, their, their energy sector um, is, you know, Parts of it have been uh, purchased and bought by by Serbia. Uh, they Vucic just signed a, a uh, 
a deal with Russia uh, providing gas uh, for I forget how many years at this point, but it's happened you know after the war. Um, and in fact, he uh, has still to uh, fully align himself with the European position and Western sanctions on on Russia. Um, he's uh, uh, one of his ministers, Mr. Vulin, uh, visited Moscow recently and mes- met with Lavrov. Um, but the reality is, uh, and so you know, that's those are the facts uh, uh, over the, the the bigger picture. Depends on again how you 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 approach these these questions. Um, Mr. Vucic is a very talented politician. I think uh, one of the uh, longest running uh, balancers uh, I think in the region, and is just able to uh, wend and weave his way through all sorts of contradictions. Um, he uh, certainly to Europeans, he presents himself as the only politician in Serbia who can bring Serbia into the EU. Nevertheless, he uh, he uh, has welcomed Chinese investments uh, and uh, and has you know uh, for long historical cultural reasons, Serbs have always had a a close relationships with Russia, and he uses that as well domestically um, and to his benefit. So it's a it's a long running balancing thing, and the the, the question always comes down to. Uh, where does Mr. Vucic actually um, stand on this? Um, the, again, if you talk to people in Kosovo, uh, they see uh, that he is uh, very frequently consulting with Russia and uh, is preparing himself to be the cat's paw and perhaps open another front for Mr. Putin if, uh, if necessary, uh, as Ukraine goes, uh, goes a certain way. Uh, you hear that a lot in Kosovo when you talk to people. Um, and it's plausible, quite frankly. But at the same time, if you look at Serbia longer term, uh, Mr. Vucic has been, in fact, uh, a very uh, calculating politician who has always balanced between the three. Uh, One of the questions as someone who who watches this closely is how long can this go on? Um, At one point, uh, at some point, uh, even the best juggler has to stop juggling or, you know, perhaps one of the the balls drops. Um, And what does that look like? Uh, we haven't seen it yet. Uh, he's, he's still managing to uh, juggle and, uh, in fact, uh, uh, is seen as a, a, a valuable partner in solving a lot of the issues in the region by Western diplomats, even though he has yet to fully align himself with Western priorities on Ukraine. So that tells you, I think, a lot about what a talented politician he is to be able to pull that off uh, this far into the war. Maida, I know you wanted to jump in briefly. Um, yeah, just. Um perhaps uh, one short uh, comment on Serbia and um, and just kind of to follow up on what Damir has said in your question. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm sitting here in Berlin and as you can imagine, everyone here is kind of looking towards winter and uh, worrying about how Germany is going to make it through because of its um, significant dependence on Russian gas. And I think when we talk about Serbia and generally kind of Serbia's dependence on Russia's energy, um, we actually, um, ex- well, not just us as observers, but I think Mr. Bucic likes to do that uh, personally as well. I think that dependence is slightly exaggerated. Um, you know, Serbia has um, imports Russian gas to 100%, but the share of natural gas in its total energy um mix is only at 13%, which is half of the average um, share in the EU countries and definitely uh, than in Germany. The picture is a little bit different with oil. Uh, but again, 
um, if you look at the region and not just Serbia, I mean, in Bosnia, the share of natural gas in the total consumption is 3%, um, which is really, um, you know, not that much. And unfortunately, the alternatives that are available in the region are not, you know, what the Europeans would like to see with their green energy transition. It's mostly going back to coal. It's very, you know, um, heavy pollutant industries. Um, but, you know, you, you then have, for instance, Kosovo, Albania and Montenegro that have no gas in there and, and hardly any gas pipelines and rely also on hydro and are looking towards renewables. So I think, you know, we need to keep in mind when we talk about uh, President Vucic is that what he has always done, and he's really master in doing this um, in negotiations with the West uh, Europeans, the Americans, is, you know, he does position himself as someone who can solve the problems, but he always has three, four issues that he kind of, you know, plays with and, um, you know, says uh, to the Europeans, well, you know, there's a trade-off. If you want me to cooperate on Kosovo, I can't help you in Bosnia. If you want me to, or, you know, you need to cut me some, you know, uh, close an eye on Bosnia if you want me to join the sanctions right now. Obviously, the pressure was huge on Serbia to join EU-Russia sanctions. Um, well, I can't do all of these things at the same time, so uh, you need to kind of um, close another eye on Kosovo. So I think we need to be careful in, um, you know, taking at face value um, his sort of position in terms of what he can or cannot do, um, because he can really play these issues against each other wonderfully. Uh, and now he's expanded them. Previously, it used to be Bosnia and Kosovo. Now it's Russia, it's China. There's lots of these things. And energy has become one of them. So I, I'd like to stay on this, this broader topic of the potential Russian uh, influence that might be playing out in the region and um, ask you, Maida, about the case of Bosnia specifically. You mentioned earlier that there's um, that potentially uh, Russia has been encouraging the uh, rhetoric around secession in Republika Srpska in Bosnia, um, and I'm, you know, from my perspective, it seems it seems like this is maybe a threat that has been circulating for for a while, and it's not really clear to me how, you know, whether that's a realistic prospect of something that could happen despite the rhetoric around it. Um, on the other hand, I have seen. Um, that you know there there have been some um really concerning developments going on such as um attempting to create uh their own uh, armed forces in Republika Srpska and things like that and so i i just be i'd be curious to hear your perspective on this issue specifically how that's playing out um i i do know that bosnia and herzegovina have elections coming up in early october um if this issue is sort of uh, you know what what the rhetoric is around it in in the run up to the elections and then just any any other um, uh, any other related developments in the country at the moment that you think are really important to highlight? Thank you. Um, perhaps just for some context uh, for your listeners. Um, prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, just a couple of months before, we had one of the biggest secessionist crises in Bosnia since the war ended. And it came about as a result of... Um, an initiative by Milorad Dodik uh, in the kind of sub-state parliament in Republika Srpska 
to basically pass resolution withdrawing the Publika Srpska from all of the central level government arrangements um, that are critical really for Bosnian sovereignty, um, not just defense, but also uh, judiciary um, and taxation um, and many other areas as well, but just kind of to name uh, several key ones. And so, you know, we were already struggling with the question, is he really going to act on it? Is he not? What is really behind this? Um, and then after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we had a statement by Russian ambassador to Bosnia who said that, referring to Bosnia's NATO path, uh, that Ukraine's example shows what we expect. Uh, should there be any threat, we will respond. So there was quite a lot of nervousness uh, on one hand, either kind of direct or indirect uh, effect on Bosnia. And as a result of that, you had, you know, suddenly European Union deploying another 500 troops to Bosnia. Um, Germany, you know, a country where we thought we'll never send its soldiers back to Bosnia has deployed 50 of its soldiers this summer. Uh, it's not a lot, uh, but it does show you a little bit the change in mood. Um, now, the question is, and I agree with Diamond, I mean, we, we we see this kind of awakening, but is there a strategy and do we know how to deal with the challenge and do we even need to, do we even actually as Western policymakers understand uh, the challenge? Um, and, you know, if, if I was perhaps to kind of directly answer the question, um, you know, how real is this threat? Um, you know, is Russia really capable and willing to go that far to push for secession of RS or to um, install a greater degree of instability one way or another? Um, I would say that really purely depends on the level currently and unfortunately on the level of kind of US and EU's resolve to confront Russia's proxies in Bosnia. Uh, who are the kind of local nationalist um, uh, parties, in particular Milorad Dodik and his party SNSD, but also um, Croat nationalists uh, and the HDZ. And just to explain why is this so, um, it is because Russia's number one goal in Bosnia is to keep the country out of NATO uh, and to prevent um, and to also keep it from aligning its foreign policy with the EU and the US uh, when it comes to Russia. And it can, done, it, it can do so without really much investment. What it needs is simply to keep, you know, um, keep the system as it is, constitutional system as it is, so that its proxies, which I've just mentioned, can keep using the veto mechanisms to block any decisions in the institutions that are unfavorable to Russia. This includes the alignment with the EU sanctions and the US sanctions, but it also includes any step towards NATO, um, which is why I mentioned at the very beginning that the relevant bit um, of this whole dynamics is really the response um, of the Western powers and organizations um, which at least in the short run in Bosnia has led to a bit of tuning down of tone uh, of both Milorad Dodik, um, uh, but also other nationalists as far as how far they're willing to go. You don't hear much about secession. You do hear you know, a lot about the crisis now involving Croats and the election law. Um, but I think, again, what happens in Bosnia at the moment um, is, is you know, highly, unfortunately, still dependent uh, on the resolve um, 
of, of the Western powers? I, I, I end up just pushing back a little bit on the idea that Russia has like a really coherent policy and a lot of this stuff. I think Russia has a lot of opportunities in the Balkans and that's really, you know, it's, it's what I um, end up sort of telling people when we talk about Russian influence in the region. They're playing. They're playing because it's a soft underbelly, because it's a mess and because Europe doesn't have a plan for it. Uh, enlargement is, you know, despite uh, what you mentioned, there are some, you know, glimmers of hope, but it's 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 not it's not about to happen. Um, it, we're not in any in any place where where these countries will be joining Europe within the next, uh, I think, foreseeable future still. Um, and as a result, there's just a lot to play with. And that's really what the Russians end up doing. I think it's important to remember, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Maida would not disagree with this, is that the local actors have have all sorts of interests, and it's about uh, they're they're often tied to corruption, uh, at local crime gangs, uh, you know, ethno nationalist politics are also just tied to patronage networks um, and to local crime syndicates, uh, you know, in Bosnia, but but elsewhere as well. That's that's how politics works here. We talk about parties, but really they're not parties; they're patronage networks, which are just ba basically corruption machines. And, you know, uh, we talk about the, the, the Serbs, we talk about the, uh, the Croats, but also the, 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 the Bosniak parties. There are civic parties in Bosnia that are not corrupt, but actually the, the major Bosniak parties are also large patronage machines that work on the, on the basis of basically ethnic politics. So this is just something that, that in fact is, is a, is ripe for manipulation and use by Russia. It is, it is useful and easy for them to do. I think it's a mistake to think about, Lo, what, what's, what's the Kremlin planning here? I think they're looking like we are and they see things because it's much easier to, to wreck stuff and to create a mess than it is to build. And that's the, the, the nasty asymmetry that, that the West has always faced in the Balkans. Uh, the West has been a constructive power, at least it has a vision, uh, hasn't always been able to, to execute on constructing uh, an order uh, in, its, in its backyard and in, in Europe's backyard there. But, but it's a constructive vision and a vision for prosperity and a future. But it's easy to, it's always easier to kick down a sandcastle than to build one. Um, so, you know, that's just what I'd qualify uh, Maida's remarks. I mean, I don't know how much she, she agrees with me on that, but that's, that's on how I end up viewing malign influence in the region. It's not to say that they're not playing, they are. And it's not to say that, that they can't cause a mess because they do frequently. But it really is important to keep in mind that it is the local players that end up making these calls and it's their incentives that matter more than anything else. Um, focusing on the, the, uh, the outside power, I think actually ends up not coming up with good policy that way. One quick follow-up question. I know Nick wants to get to the EU accession question, which is a really important one, but I, you know, you're talking about kind of you know, telling the story from the perspective of local actors too, and not just focusing solely on what Moscow is doing and trying to break in the region. And one thing that I think is somewhat remarkable or or notable is the way that Putin's invasion of Ukraine has made many countries um, double down and chart a very clear course. So I'm thinking about, you know, the invasion really prompts Finland and Sweden to move forward with their accession. It prompts Georgia and Moldova to really recommit to the Western trajectory. It's led to Kazakhstan distancing itself from Moscow in a really interesting way. I wonder if, is there a story that you can tell about how different countries within the Balkans have reacted to the invasion? Or is it really, I mean, just, as you say, like nothing, nothing new. But I, so I, I, I'm just asking if there's been has anything surprised you about how countries have responded to the invasion? Can I say there? 
Um, I, very yeah. clear, no. There was nothing surprising about the reactions. And in fact, they, the, the way different countries reacted followed perfectly uh, their general orientation and kind of previous um, previous relationship to Russia versus West. And what you see is you see this huge contrast, which, by the way, just reaffirms what Daimler was saying earlier. And by the way, I absolutely agree with Daimler's point that the only reason why Russia is able to exercise such um, influence, which is disproportional to actually its economic leverage and presence in the region and investments, is because of the proxies um, that, you know, uh, it is able to use uh, specifically in Bosnia, but also in Serbia and Montenegro to kind of push its agenda forward. And now if you look at how Albania has reacted um, to, you know, the countries where you actually don't have these proxies either that powerful or able to use constitutional tools to actually drive the decision-making process, you've had a clear orientation and quick alignment with US and EU sanctions, clear condemnation. We were in Tirana um, just kind of, you know, a month or two after the invasion and, you know, the Albanians changed the name um, of the street where Russian embassy is located to free Ukraine and, you know, said to the Russians, you need to change the address on your cards, otherwise mail is not going to be delivered. I mean, it goes that far. And on the other hand, you have Russia's allies and proxies that are you know, preventing Serbia from aligning. Um, but then in Bosnia, you have this really interesting dynamics where the power sharing system that you have in place requires consensus on foreign policy. So you cannot you know, pass decisions without Bosnian Serbs, you know, voting and Dodik has been, you know, the best kind of, if you want, player for Russia to vote on all of the issues the way Kremlin likes it. But then you, you know, you have this extraordinary situation in which Bosnian embassy um, in Brussels, you know, suddenly decides to vote for the alignment of Bosnia with the EU and US sanctions. Um, and the Serbs within the country or Milorad Dodik is suddenly silent and doesn't really kind of say much about it, right? Which also signals to me that he's under pressure not to be so loud as to say my constitutional rights are, were violated and I didn't vote for this. But then they block implementation through the Council of Ministers because the chair of the Council of Ministers is someone from Dodik's party and refuses to implement sanctions. So you really have a mix in the region of different countries that have different degree of sovereignty in the foreign policy as to how much they're able or willing to do. Andrea, let me let me just uh, maybe complicate what you said there, or maybe like even give it a, a, a valence. Well, would uh, it be the Balkans if you didn't make it more complicated? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, but look, uh, countries you've, you've listed, uh, Georgia, uh, Moldova, um, Ukraine, obviously, uh, uh, Finland, um, and uh, um, Kazakhstan. What, what we're looking at here are, are countries that are um, directly being uh, threatened on the one hand. Uh, they feel a threat and have been dealing with Russia on a very personal level, uh, you know, very closely. Um, they have, uh, most of those pivots have been uh, towards NATO. Um, and that has been, I think, the successful pivot. 
the Europeans have, and we can now talk about enlargement as a result of this. The Europeans have made this nice gesture towards Ukraine and Moldova. But, you know, uh, as, as someone who's been working on enlargement in the Balkans for a while, and uh, it's, it's something I, I tell my Ukrainian and Moldovan friends, is like, strap in, guys. You know, these are empty words. And this is a political gesture that the sentimental European Parliament felt like they needed to do. Um, and it was a, a, a moment uh, of solidarity and values and the rest of this. But this is a process that is, is, uh, is gummed up. It's properly gummed up and you see it in the Balkans very profoundly. To Maida's point, uh, you know, uh, uh, Albania in particular, North Macedonia, uh, NATO members uh, lined up immediately because it's NATO, quite frankly. Um, uh, the Albanian rhetoric on European enlargement is still actually quite embittered, even though they've gotten the uh, the green light at this point. And I can say that, that Kosovo is quite keen to be getting into partnership for peace. They are absolutely um, uh, anxious about it and really want to do it. They have an issue because of uh, non-recognizers among um, NATO member states. And that's, I think, uh, the blockage uh, for getting that further. But there, there again, uh, when it came to hard security, NATO, absolutely, lots of stuff. The EU carrot, however, um, I think it's important to distinguish those two because quite frankly, it's, uh, it's a lot less effective. I think it was a, a powerful symbol for Moldova and Ukraine, um, but uh, as, a, as an actual functional mechanism for, uh, for doing change, a lot of changes will have to happen for that credibility to be restored, uh, for that Western credibility, for that tool to actually be useful uh, uh, as a problem-solving mechanism. So I do, I do want to follow up a little bit. Oh, sorry, Maida, did you have something you wanted to add on here? Yeah, just, just kind of a quick remark. Um, again, I don't disagree with Dahmer, um, but I would add that at the EU carrot, quite frankly, if I look back, um, you know, at the region back to 2003, when you had the Thessaloniki promise and this kind of golden age of EU integration and pool in the region where everyone was, you know, quite excited that we can kind of pull it through. Not even then was the EU carrot uh, the main driving incentive. In fact, it never worked alone. Um, perhaps you know, I think we need to distinguish between the kind of two different sets of countries um, and one group is getting increasingly larger. Um, it's the group where you have the elites that really do not want to proceed towards the EU because all of the reforms that EU is asking for is undermining uh, their not just power position, but absolute complete impunity. Um, and is, you know, probably um, leading to a situation where they have to step down or undergo criminal trials. And then you have another set of countries, which you had with Zoran Zaev, um, you know, after the, the kind of first change of government, where the elite really wants to kind of lead the process forward and they want to, you know, and they want to implement the reforms. And there may be you know, the EU can play more significant roles, the carrots are more important, but in all of these other contact, uh, contexts, which are the kind of regional hotspots, whether it's Bosnia, whether it's Kosovo, whether it's, well, not Kosovo, but kind of Kosovo-Serbia uh, relations, current, current government in Kosovo actually wants to kind of go forward with the rule of law reforms. Um, but you do have this difficult negotiation um, with Serbia. And there, you know, looking back again to 2003, where we've had some success with EU carrots or conditionality is only when it was complemented 
by a very strong and robust U.S. engagement, by, you know, sanctions by, you know, by united front uh, of, of quint powers. And, um, and EU really mostly served as legitimization rather than a driving force. It was great to legitimize all of these reforms for the sake of the EU, but why the elites went ahead with it was, you know, there was a different reason behind it. Let me just jump in one thing, Maida, because it's just so important to note, though. You mentioned Zoran Zaev in North Macedonia, who is no longer prime minister by and large because the promise of EU enlargement brought down his government uh, because of the failure of the EU to deliver on that. The one reformist who was actually had legitimacy, his government did get mired in corruption itself after a while, as it is in the Balkans, because these things, corruption is not just a guy coming in and saying, I'm done with corruption. These things are sticky. It's very hard. Nevertheless, if there's one institution that failed North Macedonia, it is the European Union at this point. It's nothing else. And while I absolutely agree that uh, U.S. engagement and actual cooperation, not showing daylight between the Europeans and Americans is the way that things get done in the region, uh, we shouldn't, I think, whitewash uh, the, the really dire record that EU enlargement has had in the region. And again, that's a message I think that, that our Ukrainian and, and Moldovan friends need to internalize right now. It, this is a big symbolic win for them, but it's, it's, it's an ugly business and it's a difficult business. Um, anyway. What, one question I have on this, this subject is, um, I mean, you're absolutely right that the EU enlargement process has been stalled in the region for a long time. And um, I, I think there have been sort of other solutions that have uh, at least in, in the, the the regional economic integration domain, other solutions that have, that have been tried to come up with. For example, there was the the launch of the Berlin process by by the EU um, uh, a few years ago, which um, you know it seems to have a bit of a mixed record. My my own impression is that it seems to be somewhat stalled as well. But then uh, also I've I've been sort of reading about the the Open Balkan initiative as well, which similarly similarly is trying to promote. Uh, regional uh, integration on a more functional level. I'm curious, yeah, to hear from you, Damir, what you think about these. Whether in, in there's specifically, it seems to be there's there's maybe some tension between the Berlin process and the Open Balkan Initiative. What do you what do you make of that? What do you think of these? You know, uh, these other regional uh, integration initiatives um, uh, within the context of the more the broader issue of stalled EU enlargement. Sure. Uh, Berlin process was launched several years ago by Angela Merkel, uh, and it was an attempt basically, even though uh, avowedly not to be uh, a, a, a separate thing from or an alternative to enlargement. Uh, it was basically an attempt to uh, help, uh, you know, with, uh, with, with investments and, and, you know, to try and cobble together Bring the region together, uh, and to, the idea, you know, towards the end of it, was to come up with a uh, the approach to a, even a common regional market. So basically, to edge the region towards European standards um, and reforms that would then actually complement the actual accession process, which hopefully wouldn't have stalled at that point. Um, the Berlin process uh, is now actually being relaunched. Um, uh, there's talk about it. There's going to be a summit in Berlin, I believe, in, in uh, early to mid-November, uh, where it's going to be specked out and there's going to be more talk about how to how to do it. Um, uh, the Open Balkan Initiative uh, is an initiative started by uh, North Macedonia, Serbia, and uh, Albania. Um, basically, you know, it's arguably uh, it, 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 it got its start because of the Berlin process, because the leaders were constantly meeting. Um, the, the 
Berlin process failed to actually uh, create the common regional market, which was its its goal. Uh, largely, it came to blows over uh, over Serbia and Kosovo uh, was was the the main problem about recognition and and uh, you know how this would work. So the three started uh, doing their own sort of thing um, as as again a regional economic integration initiative um, that uh, they claim is open to all six countries, but it's only been three so far. Uh, Montenegro is. Uh, the current prime minister, Dresden Abazovic, has, has uh, been at these summits and he's sort of playing footsie with it, but it's not clear whether Montenegro uh, is going to come in. Bosnia is absolutely not uh, wanting to. And uh, the Kosovars also don't want to, to go in on it. Um, the suspicion among uh, the countries that don't want to go in that this is actually a Serbian project, that it's a project of you know, Serbia's creating a, a economic unit and they want no part of that. They feel like it's a distraction from the EU path. Um, my own, my own sort of uh, opinion of it is that, uh, you know, in the, in the fact that, that everything is stalled at this point, um, if they can, if the three can make something happen and are held to the fact that, that uh, it has to be open to all six, um, let them see what they can do on their own. Uh, they say they're, they're uh, uh, you know, all of the MOUs that they're, they're writing and all of the agreements that they're doing are based on European standards, that it's not in any way competing with it. Um, but you're right, there has been a, a tension between the Berlin process, which is, uh, you know, made in Europe and a plan for the, for the region and this, uh, this project of the three, which, you know, uh, I think it's fair to say has been has been has grown up out of a frustration with the failures of the European process, um, but also uh, due to the impasse between uh, Serbia and Kosovo. Um, so you know that's that's sort of the the uh, the big picture on that. Maida, did you want to jump in and add to that? Yeah, just kind of perhaps a perspective from where I'm sitting. Uh, I think you know Damir has described it very nicely. Um, and you know, perhaps let, what what Daimler has given us is also a bit of a U.S. perspective, right? I mean, what you didn't add there is that uh, this initiative, Open Balkans, um, is also a little bit um, an issue on which there is a transatlantic disagreement, um, because the Europeans were very keen not to have overlapping initiatives. They were very keen not to have kind of a parallel initiative, um, but they were, you know, because they saw um, that this is then less likely to make the integration of the region as a whole work. I mean, the whole point was clearly to increase markets and to kind of uh, speed up the exchange of goods. And I can see the logic. I think um, kind of the perspective from, Berlin, but also from the countries that are not part of the Open Balkans, is that, you know, we already had four agreements signed, which are now being replicated. We had four agreements signed within the framework of Berlin process, and the reasons why they were never implemented for all of the six is because Serbia refused uh, to accept Kosovo's participation in this uh, in these agreements uh, as a sovereign state and asked Kosovars to kind of have some sort of a, a asterisk that says, you know, they're not sovereign state and Kosovars refused to go along with this little star. And so, you know, it's, it's a silly little thing, but actually it's all about this question again of recognition, sovereignty, et cetera. And there is 
I think if you kind of look at it from their perspective and from perspective of, of Pristina, but also from the perspective of Bosnia, et cetera, uh, they ask, all right, you're saying we're open to everyone, but under which conditions? How are we going to overcome this issue, which we weren't in the Western Balkans uh, 6 Berlin process, um, in the open Balkans, under which conditions is Kosovo allowed to join, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a little bit of, um, of a sentiment um, that it's an over, you know, that it's a separate initiative just to kind of, um, you know, get rid of the problem with Kosovo. Uh, and that it's, you know, you, there is obviously a financial part to it um, because, you know, there's funding that goes along um, with EU's connectivity agenda and integration. And the question is, you know, how is this funding going to be channeled towards which project? And I think this is really one issue where it's often um, kind of getting lost in this debate, oh, is it a greater Serbia project or not? Whereas in fact, the problems are A, more technical and financial and B, much less about greater Serbia, but really about modalities for including the entire region um, and integrating it. Um, and so, you know, I, while I agree with Daimer that the EU hasn't been very successful in solving any of these issues, I'm not sure that um, we're solving the problem by having and you know a, a parallel initiative. Maybe just one kind of small, um, perhaps positive remark. I also agree with Damner's pessimism on the EU enlargement generally, and the fact that you know what we see in North Macedonia right now. Um, you know, we've see, we see we actually see kind of uh, a return of a country that was really kind of showcase how things can move forward quickly in a positive direction to a very difficult situation as a result. Um, of of kind of the EU failure uh, to get the process moving and as a result of blockage um, by Bulgaria, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think still there is this notion in Berlin, and I'm not saying that, uh, you know, Scholz uh, or the new government in Germany, no, no longer new, but the current government in Germany is going to be successful. But I have never seen kind of such... Um, uh, high level of interest as currently in Berlin to really move with the integration process forward, because I think they feel like we cannot afford to lose the region. Um, whether they're going to come up with better tools uh, and kind of a more effective foreign and security policy to complement uh, what they're trying to do on enlargement, I think is going to be decisive. And I don't see much progress on that. But you know, if you just look at who is the, the actor that has such an amazing potential, it really is, uh, besides clearly the US that is probably progressively going to disengage, it's the EU that has you know, still 57% um, of share of, um, of imports you know, with Serbia and 64% of share of exports, as opposed to Russia that is at four and 5%. Um, it's still the biggest economic player and the biggest trade partner and the biggest investor. And I think the question is, can they actually learn how to use this potential um, to, you know, to move the needle forward? Well, we're almost ending on a positive note. I, I, I worry about turning it over to you, Damir, that you might, <laughs> you might derail our, our plans, but I don't know. I guess the, we're at the end here um, and maybe any final word, the final word is yours. 
No, look, I mean, I, I think Maida and I, I, I mean, we've known each other for a while and, and we, we broadly agree on all of this. I think I think uh, it really is a moment and I've, I've, I've seen it myself. Uh, when I saw Maida last, I was in Berlin, spent a few days and really was talking to people. There is a new energy there. Um, and and uh, it's, it's she's absolutely right. It's about getting the kind of tools to tackle this and, and think about it uh, in a smarter way. Um, let's see what happens in, in Berlin in November uh, and this uh, the relaunch of the of the Berlin process. Uh, I, I personally am hopeful that that there's uh, new thinking uh, coming about that that more than anything, um, I think my advice would be that 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 uh, the, the European Union and it doesn't come easy to them. They need to be more political. Um, that is one of the things that has always, I think, crippled the European Union is that they see all of these things as technocratic problems. And um, the European Union actually has a lot of political weight, but doesn't know how to use it. And quite frankly, the Germans are are, are the biggest defenders of that. They are the the, the, the most post-political uh, European nation. Um, hopefully that'll change. And hopefully Ukraine is, is changing that uh, in some way, that that Europe will will become more of a political actor. Um, and, and I think if it does, uh, we could see good things in, uh, in the Western Balkans in the future. Look at that. You did it, Tamir. You did end us on a positive and, and somewhat hopeful note. Um, this has been a really excellent conversation. Um, it's always a hard and complicated one. So I thank you both for taking the time to kind of get us up. Uh, we've scratched the surface, maybe perhaps, of some of the things that are going on in the Balkans. And so we appreciate your expertise. Um, I think it is something we will try to follow more closely. So hopefully we will have you both back um, for an update in the in the coming months. So thanks thanks to both of you for joining. Yes, thank you both so much. Uh, really, really great. And uh, as Andrea said, hope to have you back soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.